spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Thank you guys so much for coming to the Barbell Medicine Seminar, Sydney 2024. Uh, we're going to do a Q&A. These are questions that you all have submitted. Uh, and Austin has curated. So Austin's the one to blame if we don't get to your specific question, would direct all hate mail towards him. Okay, question number four. Jordan, that's me. If you had a dirt bike accident, hypothetically, and you instead lost all of your memory, how would you go about regaining all that you know as fast as you can? <laughs> uh, this would assume I'd be much younger because I think at this current age, there's no chance. I have no chance. And further, would I be aware of what I have like lost? I'm Either. imagining that movie Memento, where you'd have to like leave clues for yourself to get yourself all the way back That's what up I'm to saying. where you want to. Like I would just, I would just wake up, not know who I am, and be like, oh, kind of jacked. <laughs> but Maybe I should go try deadlifting. But a little bald. Ah, dang it! What can I? <laughs> would have traded something. Um, I think you know the crux of the question is like, if you were trying to gain as much knowledge in the health, fitness health promotion space, like how would you go about doing it? In this particular case, if I lost all of my memory, all of my fund of knowledge, it'd be very difficult for me to like take uh, the admissions test to get into medical school and like get readmitted. But provided I could do that, I think actually going back to medical school would be the, the hot ticket. It's just really difficult to, outside of some sort of formalized educational process, learn that much in a short period of time and get credentialed in order to actually do something with that knowledge. So even if I was like highly motivated to do self-study and I did all of the courses, uh, you know, replicated all of the courses on my own of medical school, but I did it by myself, well, at the end of that, then what would I have? Nothing. I'm still not credentialed. You're as a just physician. a guy. I'm just a guy still. <laughs> I have no like scope of practice. I'm just, just a dude. Uh, so yeah, I probably would go to medical school and I would, uh, you know, complete uh, some sort of primary care residency, either internal medicine or family medicine, probably do a sports medicine fellowship or pain fellowship or something like that. The whole while training my absolute face off to get as much practical experience in resistance training as possible. Ideally, then getting recognized by, by bros in the gym, by like, you're real strong, will you coach me? So then I could get that practical experience. So then I'd have education with mileage and then be able to kind of do this. And then hopefully, after all that is done, I re-meet you <laughs> and we could start doing this thing all over again. The question is, do you think we, cho we choose barbell medicine as a name the second time? 
I mean, you what probably would. would. Yeah. yeah, I probably. Yeah, I would come up with it again, and I'd be like, "Wow, what a great name!" <laughs> and then I'd go look up like the 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 corporation, the LLC, and the copyright or whatever. I'd be like, "Who's this Jordan Feigenbaum guy? <laughs> oh, it's me." <laughs> yeah, that's probably. What What would you do if you got if you lost all of your memory? How would you learn as much as humanly possible? Would you do the same? I don't think that there's a way to accelerate the process of getting to where I am at this point, honestly. It's a yeah. combination of the formalized education and the experience and screwing things up and, you know, trying to teach other people and realizing, oh, I don't know this as well as I thought I did. Let me improve my own understanding so I can teach this better. Like I even, you know, I'm at this point, what, approaching six years out of residency training after medical school, after, uh, after college, all that stuff. And I'm still like the past year for me in my clinical work, in my education work, training junior doctors has been probably one of the biggest years of progress personally still at this point because of how much ongoing like self-study and practice and work and improving my teaching methods that I do at this point in my, in my training. A lot of people are like, oh, I finished training years ago. I'm just like cruising at this point. I continue to work my ass off at getting better at, at what I do day to day in terms of teaching and training people. And I do not think I could accelerate the process. This just takes a lot of time. You could, you could flip this question and be like, imagine that you know, you got in an accident and you lost all the strength that you had, right? And you didn't have whatever muscle memory kind of phenomenon really exists. You're really truly reset to like your novice status. How would you go about getting back to where you were as fast as you can? I don't know that you can really accelerate the process meaningfully. There are probably a couple training decisions that I would do differently, certain programs that I might not have done, certain others that I would have done a bit sooner. But honestly, if I tell myself if I did that, would I get back to where I'm any faster? I still don't know. There would have probably just been different challenges along the way, different setbacks that I had to deal with. I don't know. It's just a, just a thought experiment, I suppose. Is, is there any sort of like formalized, either, either formalized or informal education certificate, certificate program that you've done that now in hindsight you're like, ah, that was a waste of time. I should not have done that. I think I would just fundamentally be in a different place if I hadn't done any aspect of what I've been through. I think all of it kind of contributed in one way or another to where we are, our, our thoughts on certain positions being for or against or experienced with to be able to speak with authority on certain things. So yeah, I mean, you just be a different person if you change anything about your prior experience. I agree. So I was thinking about like what things would have the, the least meaningful change in like where I'm at. And I think it's like the CSCS, the ACSM, HFS, the, the CrossFit level one that I went to in 2009, like just a handful of things. I, it didn't really change what I was doing, nor did it change the business that I was getting, nor did it really change like, uh, um, you know, how I was actually practicing. It just, I spent money, I spent the thing, I got the credential, yeah. ultimately didn't change anything. So I don't know that it was a big enough time sink for it to actually meaningfully change, but I probably would have skipped that yeah. in hindsight. Not a lot of shortcuts, I think is the bottom line here. Also, Jordan, don't fall off your dirt bike, because yeah. that's terrifying. Yeah, that's gonna be a would you rather at some point later on this, this trip. Okay, uh, with the benefits of late specialization for youth athletes in mind, what are your thoughts about including lots of variety and exposure to various sports slash activities for injury recovery? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I guess if this is for younger individuals, is that how you understand this question to be? Or just people general. in general? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think after somebody is out of that acute phase where they're effectively cleared for you know, activities, there's no real constraints on what they can or can't do. They've gone through that initial process. I think that meaningfully, their training should change in such a way to include a broader base of demands. They should have stuff that, for example, from a resistance training standpoint, should be pretty heavy, pretty slow, you know, 
get strong in, in some of the you know squat pattern, push pattern, row pattern, hinge pattern. There should be some power improving stuff, stuff done at high velocity. There should be some dynamic stuff, some agility work, some unilateral stuff certainly. And then with respect to either recreational or organized sports participation, I would recommend a sampling. Not only to figure out what you like and what you're good at, but also just to get different strategies to deal with different movements you may have to otherwise encounter in life. And so with respect to actual like sporting participation, I think the best thing you could do for kids is allow them to play as many sports as possible rather than pushing them into a single one early on. Unfortunately, a lot of uh, sports and when they select for uh, like people to go either into the pro sort of that sort of uh, uh, category or like otherwise make a living or go, you know, get a college scholarship, it requires early specialization. So, you know, golf, soccer, gymnastics all require in some, on some level like early specialization, otherwise you age out of the sport or age out of getting a scholarship or age out of making it to the pro ranks, which is unfortunate because I think that tends to lead to worse outcomes, earlier burnout, maybe more injury rate than we would otherwise tolerate. But the worst thing is like when, you know, little Timmy is, you know, nine years old and he's playing soccer year round and it's like, yeah, well, what about like basketball, football? Uh, hockey. You guys play hockey down here? Is that a thing? You guys have ice? Haven't seen <laughs> anything cold since I've been here. So, um, yeah, I think, and ultimately the, the interesting thing is you're going to identify, people will then identify themselves as being really great at sports they might not otherwise uh, have, you know, been exposed to. Number of stories of people later in life discovering that they're actually great at certain sports. There's a, uh, when London had the Olympics in 2012, they put out this like, you know, all persons bulletin, like, hey, if you're between, you know, the ages of, I, I don't know this, I'm just making this up, 20 and 30, and you're kind of athletic, and you want to try out for the rowing team, like, come on down, and they would have them row some sort of piece. And this woman, she was a school teacher at the time, never rowed before, but hopped on the rower, and apparently rowed a very impressive time at that particular Olympics, 2012, she ended up meddling. And now she's an Olympic level rower. All right. And it's like, well, how come she wasn't exposed to that early on? It's like, oh, because row, it's really difficult to get in a crew unless somebody else in your family's in a crew, you're connected. It's the same thing with golf. You know, while golf is like one of the fastest growing sports in the world, it costs a lot of money. You usually have to have a family member involved in order to get, um, you know, exposed to it. And it's like the best golfer right now in the world or would be best golfer in the world may not have ever swung a club, you know. Remains to be identified. In powerlifting, it's the same thing. That's for sure the case. <laughs> in 2012 to like 2015, I felt like, wow, I'm doing really well. I'm like towards the top of the heap here, right? But now more and more actual athletes who are actually strong have come along and, you know, put me back down in my place. And if there are still a bunch of other people who otherwise are just, you know, farm strong and who, if they were exposed to an, a decent powerlifting program and had the opportunity to compete, would set new records, you know? And so... Yeah, having opportunity to participate in sport is a pretty complex topic, especially when you go back to like school age children, um, especially uh, when it comes down to like how old they are when they enter a certain grade and so how big they are relative to their cohort. So a really cool book on this that's got some interesting information is called Sports Gene. And so uh, one of the examples has to do with hockey players, for example. In general, you have a much higher chance of going pro in hockey if your birthday is after the cutoff for a given school year so that you're the oldest person in your cohort because you end up being bigger, more mature, faster, stronger, whatever. And so you're a standout player because you happen to be a little bit more developed by the time you get in front of coaches. And so you get additional opportunities to play high level uh, hockey 
better coaching, more opportunities to go pro. And so, yeah, the, pro, the professional ranks, the National Hockey League, there are more older uh, individuals. But that's a, pretty, that's a pretty cool read if you're interested in this. Yeah, from a rehab standpoint, we're definitely fans of using variation uh, in exposure. Um, I think that the caveat here, so one of the examples in this question was related to ACL injury. And so if you have somebody who's already a specialized athlete, experiences something like an ACL injury, gets repaired, and is trying to get back to that sport, then yes, in the early phases of rehab, we're going to expose them to a lot of things, but they're probably going to have a little bit quicker trajectory of like re-specialization if the aim is to get back into competitive play in whatever timeline is appropriate for them. So if somebody's already specialized and they're trying to get back to that, then I would alter the timeline a little bit or the, or the, you know, the degree and the duration of this wide variation. Uh, but if somebody is not in that scenario, then all the variation, down with that. That's very good. Yeah. Okay. What is your reasoning when looking at grading a running program to A, help get somebody into running without any previous experience, or B, return to running after injury, such as knee pain? Do you prioritize distance, intensity, intervals, etc.? Uh, so I'll give you a little framework here. It's this FIT acronym that's what's used for prescribing like conditioning. Sometimes it's been applied to resistance training as well, but it stands for frequency, intensity, time, and type. Right, so how often are you doing it? What's the intensity? How much volume, the time, and the type? Um, and in running, it'd be some, you know, jogging, it'd be actual sprinting, and then you could actually further differentiate running on a track, hill sprint, stuff like that. Uh, so as far as like how I would get somebody into running without any previous experience, my biggest concern, and it's the same thing that we talked about during the programming lecture, is doing too much too soon. So too high of a training load which isn't just the intensity, but it's a combination of the intensity and the volume in this case. Uh, so in general, I like to be conservative on the front end. And so if in this context, the current activity guidelines suggest you should be doing at least 150 minutes per week of moderate to vigorous physical activity, I'm gonna carve out some fraction of that to be foot-based. And it's not all gonna be running, um, in general, I would start with somewhere in that sort of 30 to maybe up to 60 minutes, so half of that prescription being foot-based, running-based. Uh, and so what it would look like is three times a week, you're going to go out and jog, run, walk, something like that, for 20 minutes at a stretch at RPE 4 to 5. And if you wanted a heart rate proxy for that, it should be under 70% of your max heart rate. If you wanted a talk test to sort of grade your RPE, we in the States, we use the Pledge of Allegiance. So if you can recite the Pledge of Allegiance without becoming breathless while doing it, then you're probably in that RPE four, three to four range. If you do get breathless, then it's five uh, to six. If you get very, very breathless, you can't even say the first stanza. It's higher than that. I don't know what the analog is uh, for Australia. So next time we come here in five years, I'll have a, a better story for you. But the whole point is that the effort shouldn't be hard enough to make the person out of breath. And I think that helps limit the intensity or keeps the intensity in check. So I'm starting out with a fraction of the current guidelines for running based stuff. The other fraction would be cycling, rower, skier, swimming, something like that. Although I think that people who have no previous swimming experience, it's very difficult for them to do a lot of conditioning without the risk of overuse to have a training load uh, becoming very, very uh, significant. So yeah. I like, I like to do, that's my sort of um, uh, introduction into running. 
Uh, people will invariably walk for a little bit, jog for a little bit, their heart rate will get too high, the RPU will go up, they'll have to slow down. So it becomes like a run-walk kind of hybrid until they get more and more fitness adaptations, they get better at running, improve running economy, learn their gait a little bit better, uh, and then they can run for you know the entire time without uh, the RPE going up, and that triggers me to increase maybe the volume provided that they can tolerate it. For returning to running after injury, this is assuming that a person has run before or desires to run, and they've had a knee injury in this particular case. Uh, again, it's the same principles, frequency, intensity, time, type. Uh, usually I'll back way, way off as far as their exposure. Again, in this context, instead of three 20-minute sessions per week, I'd be thinking like one or two 10 to 15-minute sessions of actual running at a, you know, in general starting at a low speed, uh, low impact. Uh, and so things that can be useful here are doing uphill uh, sort of exposures to folks, even if it's just fast walking or slow jogging, um, tends to be some favorable ground reactive forces that way. Uh, and it may, uh, on the flip side, when they have to come back down, I would advise slow walking, again, to get used to that sort of impact. Depends on the knee injury, of course, and the person's symptoms, but that's sort of my general generalized approach. Uh, the final thing i add to this is if actually running as maybe a bridge too far, you're trying to get them to be able to tolerate ballistic sort of loading of the lower extremities. So they could be hopping in place, for example, both feet in a very, uh, what Derek Miles, uh, the physical therapist who works with barbell medicine, what he would call a sterile environment. So just hopping in place, you don't have to move dynamically uh, or deal with changing terrain, you're just literally hopping in place. And it could be low amplitude at first, higher amplitude as people get better. You could switch to single leg hops, you can load it with a dumbbell or a weight vest, for example. The idea is you're gradually progressing the intensity in this particular case and the overall training load until you feel comfortable with the person actually running in a more dynamic, less sterile environment. Um, and then to the last part, do I prioritize distance, intensity, intervals? First thing I'm gonna do is control the intensity with RPE and such, then uh, at a very uh, conservative distance and then increase both of those as people go along. I think interval work can be left out of not only the initial experience, but also the return to injury. That's more for a cherry on top for training uh, and performance improvement later on, with the caveat being that somebody has the cardiorespiratory fitness to do prolonged conditioning. If they don't, then I might include intervals earlier on because that might be the only way for them to actually participate. Um, that's relatively rare, but aerobic intervals can be useful too. For example, instead of 20 minutes of continuous effort at RP four to five, it would be something like do three minutes at RP four to five and then rest for a minute or two. That's a way to get your foot in the door if somebody otherwise couldn't do um, you know, a sustained sort of bout. Yeah, I would prioritize generally building that kind of base of volume tolerance at very controlled intensities. I think if you talk to most people in this space, definitely if you talk to lifters about conditioning or cardio or something, and they say, I absolutely hate this stuff, odds are they're going harder than they need to. Um, maybe they're used to pushing themselves really hard under the bar in the gym, and they think I need to do something similar with my conditioning in order to get results. It has to be really hard to get results there. So you can get quite good results with not going very hard. And so typically I'm pulling the reins and pulling people back on how hard they're doing their conditioning. And suddenly it's like, oh, I can do this all day. It's like, okay, well, you don't need to do it all day. That's the nice part. We can give you a good dose. If we can control the intensity, cap the heart rate, cap the RPE, whatever method you want to use, not as hard. And then prioritize the, you know, progressing the duration and the volume before I start pushing into harder efforts. Yeah. Most people's low intensity stuff is not slow enough. And most people's high intensity stuff is not high enough. And uh, the quick test is if somebody says, I love sprints, 
I love intervals. I'm like, are you doing them right? Because they should be terrible. And, and because of that, in general, they re appear relatively infrequently in actual athletes' programs. So like middle distance runners in general, maybe one uh, uh, hard actual interval session every two weeks or so. And that's at the top of the sport. Who, they're the best condition folks, their performance matters the most, and that's how much they're doing it. And then, you know, there are casuals that are like, no, I do intervals every week, a couple times a week. It's like, well, if they're easy intervals, okay. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever, depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs, depending on what you want. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to generalleathercraft.com and tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. It was mentioned that there are different types slash categories of placebo. What are some examples of that? Do you say this? Yeah, there's no one placebo effect. Yeah, there's a lot of different placebo effects, and there are also placebo-like effects that are not actually placebo, but look similar to it. So I'll give you some example. It's quite, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting and complicated, but if you think about all the different ways by which we can induce some sort of a placebo-type response, I described scenarios where you can do it via a placebo-type pill, a sugar pill, for example. I talked about words that you can do to induce placebo-type effects in terms of improving positive expectations. There are rituals that can be, can be done, like when you go and you get your massage at that aromatherapy spa. There are symbols that can you know, uh, deliver this sense of meaning, potency to a given intervention. The environmental context can improve placebo-type effects. So these are all different mechanisms by which we can get some of those kind of uh, positive expectations. It's literally anything that has meaning to the person that suggests Something meaningful is happening with this intervention, even though, even if biologically it might be technically inert in terms of having delivering a specific effect. The placebo-like effects that are not truly placebo are kind of artifacts um, that can make it look like somebody is having a placebo-type response, and really they're just maybe spontaneously getting better on their own, right? So this is an example of you get a bad cold, you take some medicine, whatever it is, like when your symptoms are at their absolute worst, you're like, I can't tolerate this anymore, I need to go get an antibiotic. So you go and you get an antibiotic for your cold, and you're like, oh my gosh, that cured me. Or even if you didn't, if, even if you, you re recognize that, you know, the antibiotic isn't what fixed your cold, and you're like, that was a placebo effect. No, you just started to get better. That's called the natural history of the condition or in other contexts, what we call regression to the mean. You know, things just kind of spontaneously getting better. It can make it look like you're having a placebo response when really that's what's happening. That's actually way more common than people think. People will talk about how powerful the placebo effect is and actually a lot of people are fooling themselves and it's regression to the mean, it's natural history of the condition, it's other sorts of observational biases at play. But there are multiple different placebo type mechanisms which are super interesting relating to whatever symptom is being addressed. So there's analgesic or pain-relieving placebo-type mechanisms that happen via the same biological pathways that mediate pain or that mediate pain relief. So for example, there are uh, studies where somebody might have pain, whether you know uh, they might have pain or experimentally induced pain, and uh, they'll be given some sort of a placebo that they think is a real pain-relieving medication, but it's actually nothing. It's a sugar pill or something like that, and they'll re experience pain relief. And then afterwards, they'll be given a dose of naloxone or Narcan, which is the reversal agent for opioid medications. They just took a sugar pill, and they're like, ah, oh, I feel so much better. And then they get given a 
naloxone and opioid reversal, and like, ah, the pain's back again. Suggest it, and they might not know what that, you know, what that drug is, suggesting that some of that placebo-mediated analgesia, that pain relief that they got from taking that placebo pill, might be getting mediated via endogenous opioid mechanisms, opioid mechanisms in their own brain, making its own opioids that then get blocked and reversed when you get given the naloxone, which is super interesting. They're the same things in studies around anxiety, uh, and then somebody takes an, you know, a placebo anxiolytic, like Ativan or something like that, but it's a sugar pill, placebo, and then they get given a reversal drug that blocks those, uh, those uh, biological mechanisms, and then suddenly they have worse you know, anxiety-related issues after that, suggesting that, again, um, these neurochemical pathways are driving some of this placebo type stuff, and they're all different depending on what's, what's going on. So super interesting stuff, whether it's an actual placebo effect via any number of these, or a placebo-like effect that can confuse you from these things. If anybody is interested in this, because I recognize it is a pretty interesting field, I think the king of this research is what I assume is an Italian guy. His name is Fabrizio Benedetti. He wrote a book titled Placebo Effects. Uh, a, fr a friend of ours actually gifted this book to me, I don't know, five years ago at, at one point um, after one of our seminars. And, uh, and if you just Google his name, he is like everywhere with respect to placebo uh, research. Super interesting stuff. There's even a placebo effect of anabolic steroids. Uh, so in some studies, they've actually given people anabolic steroids. They've given another group a placebo, whatever. And the placebo group gains a significantly higher amount of muscle mass and strength than those who are still training but were not receiving the placebo. It's like placebo juice, if you will. So we're going to come out with a new supplement. It's going to be called Steroids RX. We're just going to give it to people. It's just a placebo. But, you know, we're just going to improve muscle mass and strength yeah. via... Therapy. I think the best illustration of that was, uh, was shown in a classic movie known as Space Jam. <laughs> Mike's secret stuff. That's right. To have very potent effects on those athletes. That's right. Yep. <laughs> you need the secret sauce. Okay. Uh, what would be your best advice for working with seniors age 65 plus regarding programming slash education or exercise prescription? So I assume this question is about, like, how would you train older individuals differently, I suppose? In general, uh, older individuals, I think, have an even greater calling to train like an athlete. And what I mean by that is train like their life depends on it or their livelihood depends on it like an athlete would because, in fact, it does. Um, so unfortunately, like in, in general, younger individuals are more motivated to train. They want to look better, feel better, perform some you know, hobbyist type level better. So they train for that. Uh, but they don't necessarily need it per se because they have this physiological reserve that they're just kind of born with and developed through their early formative years. Whereas older individuals have lost a significant amount of that physiological reserve or may not have started with much of one to begin with. And they, in fact, should be charged to train like an actual athlete whose livelihood depends on it because their life does, in fact, depend on it. It's like lift for your life, uh, for example, would be, would be good here. So they seem to be highly motivated. So already that's your behavior change stuff is going to be uh, a little bit easier. Where you might run into some issues has to do with maybe uh, preconceived notions about the dangers of resistance training. So having some of that fund of knowledge stuff that we covered during the risk uh, injury risk with resistance training and uh, technique discussion, that might be useful to have on hand just to sort of uh, assuage some of those concerns. And then on the other side of that, I will say that I don't know that any specific programming considerations need to be made for older individuals that you wouldn't otherwise make for a younger individual, uh, you know, or somebody with a particular sex, or somebody of a particular ethnicity. Effectively, everybody gets the same general principles of programming. You want to make sure that the training stress meets them where they're at, given their current fitness levels, 
You're making them an active manager within their own exercise programming for exercise selection. What do they want to do? What can they do? And then you're assessing, as people go along, how they are responding to the program, and you're making iterative changes based on the feedback that you're observing and that you're getting from the individual. Are they getting stronger? Are they getting muscle mass? Are they enjoying the training? What would they like to change? And then you, as a subject matter expert, would tweak based on those responses, which is not you know, specific to a 65 plus person. That's the same thing you would do in a 25 year old or a 15 year old, for example. So I think the biggest barrier is maybe a lower level of physical fitness that you might start with, plus some preconceived notions about the safety of, of training. So the knowledge you'll need is for the, you know, uh, again, uh, handling those concerns around safety. And then again, likely being more conservative in an older individual just due to the lower level of physical fitness they may turn up with compared to a younger individual. But if a younger individual showed up with that level of fitness, you would train them the same way uh, anyhow. And finally, with saying all that, I'm just gonna talk out of both sides of my mouth as I do uh, on occasion. I think though, in saying that older individuals, you may need to take a more conservative approach. The risk is that then you underdose them, which in my estimation is a great crime against humanity. If they came into your gym, they're motivated to start exercising and you underdose them and they're not getting better, not getting much better, I think that's a disservice to them. And so I'm more concerned that the training is gonna be underdosed than overdosed. Given the fact that injury risk is relatively low, older individuals respond relatively well um, at a similar magnitude in relative terms to younger individuals. They don't spontaneously combust or turn to dust, all right, compared to younger individuals. And it's so much more important for them to actually get better that I'd err on the side of being a little bit more aggressive than you would probably otherwise expect. So it doesn't need to be just one set of 20 to 40% of their one RM, you know, for a sets of 15 to 20 just because they're old. In fact, I would say that'd be a relatively poor exercise prescription. Um, anything else? Yeah, I'm imagining kind of a scenario where let's say that you were blinded to the client who's coming in the door. Oh yeah, barbell medicine mad libs. There you go. And you were given X number of questions. You get this many questions to obtain all the information you need to propose a reasonable initial training program for this person. I only have X a handful of questions that I can spend to get the information that I need to formulate a reasonable training program for this person. Nowhere in the first many questions am I asking how many times has this person been around the sun? Yeah. How many rings do they have? Yeah. I'm asking what's their current fitness level and prior training history? What are their goals? What are their limitations, real limitations or perceived limitations? When I say real limitations, that could be like orthopedic considerations or something like that, or perceived limitations. What do they think they can't do? And then I'll dive into that a little bit and why. What do they want to do and what equipment do they have access to? Those are the questions that are going to give me the most bang for my buck in terms of formulating an initial training program, right? If I have all that information, background, goals, limitations, access, I can formulate a reasonable training prescription for anybody, regardless of how many times they've been around the sun. Yep. Yeah, it's right? Just... From five to 105. And then once that is delivered, I'm eliciting information and adjusting over time. I think that's the fun. That's like, I know you guys sat through a lengthy programming lecture, but I think I just gave it to you in like three seconds. That's the information you need. Formulate something that's reasonable based on the principles he gave you, and then adjust based on objective results and subjective feedback. There's not much more science to it than that. Honestly. Just imagine this question instead of it was seniors age 65, it was like some ethnic, you know, 
division or you know some particular like religious affiliation. Yeah. How like, would you train people from West Australia compared to people from East Australia? Well, it would be heavier if they're from West because <laughs> they're stronger. I mean, that's just how it would Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Last question: Is the healthy BMI still recommended for older adults, or would they have better outcomes being in the overweight category? Giving them a bigger buffer should they be admitted to the hospital for severe illness. So this question comes out of some data showing that the lowest like all-cause mortality rates in individuals over the age of 65 is in that 25 to 30 BMI group. Now, some of that is real insofar as you can have a BMI of, for, of 25 to 29.9 without having too much excess body fat, uh, without having too much body fat, um, because 30 is real, real kind of uh, specific cutoff there. But particularly in older individuals who are more likely to have medical conditions, having a low BMI strongly correlates with having a medical problem or multiple medical problems. And so that's why that, those particular data sets tend to be skewed towards higher BMIs. If you have a BMI of 19 and you're 70 years old, I'm wondering like, do you have some sort of you know, muscle wasting uh, causing condition like a cancer or a, you know, really untreated inflammatory condition, heart disease, things of that nature. On the other hand, if we saw this dose-dependent relationship with increasing body mass and longevity, then that wouldn't stop at a BMI of 30. It would carry on into a BMI of 30 to 35 and maybe gradually upwards if sort of excess body mass in and of itself, independent of any other factor, was really like health-promoting and you don't see that. So to me, there's like a bell curve, right? You want your BMI to be somewhere in that 21-ish to 29 range, provided your waist circumference is also in check, while also being relatively strong and carrying a lot of muscle mass. And so I know that if your BMI is in that range and your waist circumference is not out of range, that you're carrying a decent amount of muscle mass. If your BMI is below that range and or your waist circumference is out of that range, I know that on the low end, you're not carrying a lot of muscle mass. And if your waist circumference is above that, you're carrying too much fat mass, and that leads to an increased risk of a lot of different health conditions. So I don't know that uh, the, health, like, the BMI ad, uh, advice that we've given here and discussion thereof is wrong for older individuals, just that there's some additional sort of caveats there when interpreting uh, the data. Yeah, I think I've, if I had my choice here in terms of a behavioral intervention for somebody, let's say that their BMI was below that range, my choice of intervention would not be, hey, we need to fatten you up a little bit just in case you get septic shock gallon or something like that, day. right? <laughs> for a few reasons, but one of which is that these data that illustrate this kind of relationship are not necessarily um, uh, uh, drawn from training populations. So if I, if I had somebody whose BMI was in the quote-unquote normal range and they were training and functional and, and strong and, and doing really well, I wouldn't say, hey, I just need you to gain about 10 pounds um, to get yourself up. I wouldn't deliberately push that up into that range if they were training and active and carrying a good amount of muscle mass, right? But the data where this stuff comes from is general population, which Jordan told us about the rates of adherence to physical activity, not super great, especially with respect to resistance training. So it's like, if I did not know anything else about this person, but they were general population and I knew they didn't train and they were coming into the hospital critically ill and they had a BMI of 26 versus a BMI of 21 and I had to bet on who's more likely to do better, yeah, probably the person with the BMI of 26, right? Let's say, let's say, let's say 27 versus 23 and I didn't know anything else, but I just had to bet. Okay, maybe I would bet on the one that's a bit higher. But if you caveated it and said the one who's 27 has a waist circumference that's above range, they're insufficiently physically active, and the one with BMI of 23 can 
squat doesn't even have to be that much. They can squat their body weight. Yeah. I'm like 23 all day. <laughs> That's the thing that I actually care about is the person who's training and active and functional and things like that compared with just what their BMI is. So I'm not going to take the person who's 23 and training and doing well and saying, yeah, we need to fatten you up a little bit. <laughs> you know, just, just because this curve told me that mortality you know, has a nadir a little bit higher than where you're at. Yeah, like BMI is imperfect. Right, it's, it's the biggest argument against the BMI is not because it's over-diagnosing people with obesity, it's because it's under-diagnosing people uh, who should be, uh, who are carrying too much body fat but who otherwise don't meet that 30 uh, uh, sort of uh, cut point. So we talked about that a lot. In any case, that's it. Thank you guys so much for coming out to the Barbell Medicine Seminar in Sydney, we appreciate it. Thank you.